Go with me to Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. We're going to go all the way to verse 26. Now, we're pretty much going to be only here. Um, I'll read a few verses here and there, but for the most part, we'll be in Romans 3.21 for the majority of our time together. So I'm going to read you um, these five verses, and then I'm going to read to you from our statement of faith what we believe about justification. So Romans 3, starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And this is from our statement of faith, kind of give you an idea of where we're going. We believe that justification is the blessing in which those who believe in Christ are declared righteous. It includes the pardon of sin and the promise of eternal life on the basis of Christ's righteousness. It is given freely by God, not in consideration of any works of righteousness, which we have done, but solely through faith in the work of Christ. This brings us into peace and favor with God and secures every other blessing needed for time and eternity. Uh, I'm excited about this morning um, because the reality is if there is one thing that we can all agree on, it's that our world loves to talk about justice, right? We love this topic. And, and here's how I know that, okay? Just so we're clear. Here's how I know our world loves to talk about justice. There are not one, not two, not three, but there are four CSI shows on TV. Okay, there are four of them. It's like one or two or three wasn't enough. And it's the same story every episode. Someone does something bad to a good person, and that bad person gets caught. And as we're watching CSI, we feel in our souls that justice has been served, and it makes us feel good. We love that story, the story of justice being served. Like, give us a story about a judge, a lawyer, and a corrupt person or a corrupt corporation, and we eat it up. So I want to do a little test, okay? A little quiz. If you're over 30, you can probably finish this movie quote, okay? Are you ready? You want the truth? You can't. I've always wanted to do that. And now I've convinced you all to go home and watch A Few Good Men. If you haven't seen it, it's a great movie. But we love the idea of justice. Social media is filled with agendas in the name of justice. Governments have been overturned in the name of justice. Many of you in this room right now are angry because you look around at the world and you see injustice, at the idea that someone in this world is suffering at this very moment because of an injustice makes your skin crawl. So let me ask you, where did this idea come from? This idea of Justice, the idea of punishment against someone who has done wrong, the idea of fighting for the victim, the fighting against injustice, this yearning in our souls for justice and righteousness. It exists because we have a just and righteous God. 
that the idea of justification in the Bible is the reality that the gavel has banged down and we have been declared innocent. That a perfect, think about this, a perfect and holy God has looked upon hopeless sinners and shown mercy. Which leads me to the question, as we think about our text this morning, how in the world is that even possible? Like, how is that possible? Because we sure don't look innocent if we really look at our world. We don't look innocent. Like, like does God only check in on us on Sundays when we're in our Sunday best? How does that work? Does he just ignore sin as if it's no big deal? I mean, if God is all-knowing and he's all-powerful, then how can he look at us and say, holy and blameless? <clears throat> and here's the heart of the problem with understanding justification, okay? When we think about this idea of innocence, being justified, we are always tempted to measure its truth against the rules that are in place. So we have something to measure ourselves against. That We run back to the law and we ask the question, okay, have I been obedient? Have I been obedient to the rules that uphold me? And if we have lived up to the law, then we say, yes, I'm innocent. And if you haven't, then you say, you're guilty. But what I want to show us and what the Bible shows us is that the idea of biblical justification transcends the law. It's so much bigger than have you done good or have you done bad? It's so much bigger than have you done right or have you done wrong or does the good outweigh the bad? Biblical justification is ultimately a story of grace. That's what it is. Because in the end, the guilty aren't condemned, but rather they are set free. And it's beautiful. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Okay, so in order to understand verse 21, we first must identify what is meant by the righteousness of God. Or another way to say it is, what does it mean that God is righteous? So to say that God is righteous is to say that God is the standard of justice, okay? He is the standard of justice. He is the standard of all that is right. He is the standard of perfection. His acts are righteous because he is righteous, that he is the standard to which everything else measures itself against. And the law is the way in which God has revealed himself. It's the way in which he has revealed himself to the people in the Old Testament. So when you hear that word law, because you'll hear that word a lot today, um, don't think about a law that a government entity would make that a king or a senator would make. Biblically, the law is a reflection of God's character. It's an expression of his nature. So let's just take one of the 10 commandments as an example to kind of get this train moving. When God says, don't lie or don't bear false witness, he says that, why? Because he doesn't lie. God does not lie. He's a God of integrity. He's a God of truth. So the law is meant to reveal to us who God is. God is not a liar. Now, the intent of the law is not only to reveal God's character, but it's also intended to reveal our intended nature. That in the garden, we were not liars. Before Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden tree, they were not liars. They were sinless before a holy God. So when God says, do not lie, he is revealing to us our intended nature as well. In other words, he's saying, I do not lie, and you have been made in my image, therefore you shall not lie. So if you do lie, it not only violates my character, 
but it also violates your intended nature, that it can be tempting to think of the law as the rules that God has made so that we would be morally good people. That's a shallow way to think of the law. The law reveals who God is. Don't lie. Why? Because he's not a liar. God, listen, God will never lie to you. He won't. God will never lie to you. And you, you are not created to be a liar. However, and you know this, we are all liars. But in order to be declared righteous, we must, in fact, not be liars. And we will never not be liars. We will never be righteous. Every person that's ever been created has tried and failed. And this is why Paul says in verse 21 that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Okay? So when the gavel bangs down and he declares us innocent, Paul is saying that declaration does not come from the law. It can't because we can't uphold the law, but rather the righteousness of God has been declared apart from it. What Paul's doing in Romans 3, 21 through 26, he's really just circling back to the ideas that he's already said in Romans 1 and 2, and we're not going to go all the way through Romans 1 through 3, so just relax. Um, but he's just circling back to themes that he's already said. So in Romans 1, 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he says in verse 17, For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So it is in the gospel that righteousness is found. So how has the righteousness of God been made known? In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And here's his main point. In order for us to have forgiveness, it has to come apart from the law. Because the law does not have the power to save you. Does it? Your works will never save you. The law does primarily three things. It reveals the character of God. It reveals our sin because attempting to follow the law inevitably reveals that we break the law. And then it reveals our sin, or it reveals the character of God, it reveals our sin. And then third, it reveals a person, a person that would be able to keep the law fully. That's what he means when he says that the law and prophets bear witness to it. In other words, all of the Old Testament agrees that righteousness has to come from outside the law because the Old Testament is ultimately one thread, one thread that leads to one person. Jesus. And so I'm only going to make you move like once or twice. So go with me to Matthew 5, 17. Okay. Matthew 5, 17. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then Jesus goes on in Matthew 5, not only to quote the law, but he expands it over and over. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And it's the reality that the law is fulfilled by Jesus. It is fulfilled by his perfect obedience to God. And the law, as you read through the Old Testament, it testifies about Jesus because Jesus is the one who is the fulfillment of the law by being the one who has kept the law. One of my favorite stories is the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. 
you know this story? Um, it's right after Jesus died on the cross. There's these two guys walking down the road, and they're just talking about all the things that have happened. <laughs> and they're just casually talking about Jesus. And Jesus walks up, and he strikes up a conversation with them. Jesus is like, what's up, guys? What are you guys talking about? And they don't recognize him. So they begin to tell Jesus about Jesus. And they're telling him about all the things that have happened. And they're like, dude, some of the women went to the tomb where he was, and he wasn't there. And these women said that some angels came up to them, and they said, go, go tell him that he's risen. And they're like, we don't know what this means. And then Jesus, in Luke 24, 27, says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning who? Himself. See, all of it, all that points to Jesus. So the question then is if righteousness has come, if it has been manifested in Jesus, then how do we get access to it? Verse 22 tells us, he says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the means of gaining God's righteousness is through faith. Verse 28, just a few verses later, is even more clarifying. He says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So we are justified, not because of our works, not because of our ability to be good people, our ability to be good workers, our, our ability to be a good husband, spouse, our father, our our Mother, it's not because of how much we give to charity. It's not because you didn't say a cuss word yesterday. But we are justified through faith, not by work. And it works. And I think it's important to pause here and clearly define what is meant by faith. Because I think this can be misunderstood sometimes. To have faith that God will save you and to have faith in Christ are two very different things. Does that make sense? To have faith that God will save you and have faith in Jesus Christ are two very different things. That I meet a lot of people that have this belief that because God is loving, because God is good, that he will, in fact, save them. It's a faith in salvation that since salvation is generally offered, that it will be generally received. It's a passive faith that I can live my life however I want, do what I want to do, be who I want to be, and salvation will come simply because God is loving. But the kind of faith that Paul mentions here is not a passive faith. It's an active faith. It causes us to move. It's a faith that results in a change of affections. It's a faith that results in transformation. Another way to say it is that the righteousness, righteousness of God comes through the treasuring of Jesus Christ for all who believe that you don't come to him begrudgingly, you don't come to him bored, you don't come to him uninterested, you don't come to him with a regretful heart, but you come to him going, yes, I'm in. I want him that you go to him in your desperate need because he is water that quenches thirst. We go to him because our hearts are restless and they will be until they find their rest in him. I think Jesus describes it perfectly in Matthew 13, when he says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. That faith in Christ is the rejection of self-righteousness. It's the rejection of pride. It's the rejection of sex outside of marriage. It's the rejection of pornography. It's the rejection of anything that is in this world and it's the pursuit of his glory. And it's in that place that he gives us 
righteousness, that we must rely, trust, and have faith in nothing else besides Jesus Christ, that Jesus by himself is sufficient for our justification. And we have to be clear about this. We have to be clear because the world will try to lessen the significance of Jesus's saving power. The Jesus that Islam believes in is not sufficient. This idea that Jesus is a prophet doesn't cut it. That's not a saving Jesus. The Mormon Jesus doesn't cut it. This idea that he's some kind of spirit brother to Lucifer, that's not a saving Jesus. The Jesus that is equal to the Vishnu of Hinduism, that's not a saving Jesus. The Jesus who was merely a good teacher does not cut it where his words are optional. That Jesus is not going to save you. Only the Jesus who existed with the triune God before creation can save you. The Jesus who spoke the world into existence. The Jesus who is Emmanuel, God with us, who came from the Virgin Mary. The Jesus who lived a perfect, spotless life. That's the Jesus who can save you. It's the Jesus who willingly and lovingly went to the cross as our sacrifice. It's the Jesus who laid in a tomb for three days and then he rose from the dead. That's the Jesus that can save. It's the Jesus that ascended to heaven at this very moment, right now. He's seating, seated next to the Father as our advocate. It's the Jesus who's coming again with the sound of the trumpet and with the shout of the angels. It's the Jesus who will resurrect the dead. He will resurrect the dead and he's going to gather his bride once and for all. It's the Jesus who Revelation 1, Revelation 1 says his eyes were like fire. That's the Jesus that can save. So before you have faith, let's make sure your faith is placed in the real Jesus, not some kind of fake, watered down gospel, but the lifeblood that changes and transforms. It's not passive, it's active. Understanding who Jesus is and seeing what he's done makes us move. It makes us respond. And it's in that place when you have faith in the real Jesus that's where righteousness comes because he's the only one who can give it. Justification comes by faith in that Jesus, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Notice here that it says that righteousness only comes to those who what? Who believe, which means that we can infer that righteousness doesn't benefit the righteousness of Jesus doesn't benefit everybody, that there will be people who will not believe. And if you are a person who does not believe in the Jesus that I just described, then righteousness is not for you. You don't have it. Not one believer in Christ lacks righteousness with God, and not one unbeliever has it with him. God's righteousness comes to all who believe, but not a person more. And then verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As I mentioned earlier, this verse had a significant impact on me this week. It's one of the most well-known verses of the Bible. Like if you ever went to vacation Bible school, you learned this verse. And my fear this week, at least what I experienced, was that its familiarity had lost its significance. Like just to be honest, I got to this verse and my thought process was, they already know this. What am I going to say? And it was the enemy. And my fear is that for all of us, that its familiarity has made it, made it lose its significance. As the week went on, these words got more and more heavy for me. And my thought process was, okay, in order to 
for us to fall short of the glory of God, that means that at one point we did experience the full glory of God. That indeed in the, in the garden, Adam and Eve were able to taste the fullness of God's glory. But now because of sin, all of us, all of us, humanity falls short of it. And there are no exceptions. All have sin. There is, and look, there is no measurement of sin. We like to measure sin, right? Well, that person's worse than me. I'm better than them. We like to measure sin, but rather it's murder, drunkenness, pride. All sin is grouped together here to say, you fall short. You're not enough. All have sin. You've sinned. Your parents have sinned. Your, your spouse has sinned. Your children has sinned. Your pastor has sinned. And this week I was overwhelmed with the fear that because all have sinned, because sin is common among us, that its commonality has made us more accepting of it. That because it's common, that we would be tempted to just submit to it, to throw our hands up and just give in to sin, that the enemy would say, well, you're already a sinner. What does it matter if you look at that one more time or if you say that or if you do that? What does it matter if you compromise your holiness? You're already compromised. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God that we need to see sin as God sees it. It's vile, it's ugly, and it should affect us. It should affect us to be described in that way. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sinners, the embodiment of opposition to God that we must not slip into a shallow reaction to sin. If you're here and you're holding on to this idea that you can find pleasure in your sin, that it's no big deal, my hope is that you would see the, the lie that the enemy is telling you, that you would see it for the vile and disgusting thing that it is. And even more, for those of you that are holding on to a secret sin, the sin that you, you hide from us, that you do when no one's watching, that just by me bringing it up, you feel uncomfortable, that we as a faith family would repent, that you would repent to your God and bring it into the light. Listen, you are uncomfortable because your God, the Holy Spirit inside of you is reminding you that you're not a slave to it. And the flesh and the spirit are battling at this moment, trying to gain your affections, to gain your allegiance. The Spirit's reminding you that this sin has no power over you. And so may the reality of sin never be common to us. May it never be accepted May it drive us away from sin and towards Christ. And, and my hope is just by talking about that for so long is that the realities of verse 23 brings new life to verses 24 and 25 because he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You are justified by his grace as a gift, that it's in his kindness that he looks at you and declares righteous. It's in the midst of our rejection that he seeks us. It's in our attempt to find pleasure in sin that God gave us a gift that was so much better, the gift of his son, the grace of Jesus, and this gift is given through redemption. Redemption means to buy back, that Jesus has bought us back. He has purchased us. 
So you don't belong to sin any longer, but you belong to him. He says, whom God, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation, it's, it's one image that God gives us that is the root of a lot of ideas in scripture. And it's, it's one of three images that we get in our six verses this morning that throughout the Bible, God will use several ideas and images to communicate to us his love and pursuit of us. There's justification, which has been our main subject this morning. It's a courtroom image. It's a picture of a guilty person showing up in a courtroom and being declared right, that someone would take their sentence for them. The Bible uses slavery language to bring about this picture of redemption. It's the idea that you've been brought out of slavery and you've been renewed. In the Bible, we see images of a conquering warrior, someone who came to defeat the slave that, the, the sin that enslaves us, that he defeats the sin and the shame that rules us, and he rules our hearts as a conquering king. We see pictures of expiation. It's a picture of a waterfall, that I'm dirty because of my sin and shame, and Christ's blood, like a waterfall, washes me clean. We see a dinner table, the picture of reconciliation, that me and God are at odds, but Jesus Christ has gathered us at the table, and we're able to fellowship because of him. And all of those images, they're rooted in one big one, propitiation. Propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies. Specifically, propitiation means to appease God's wrath. And if all have sinned, then all are subject to God's wrath. And Paul intends for the readers to think of the temple here. This is temple language that the temple was placed in the center of the nation of Israel, in the center of their city, Jerusalem, and in the center of the temple was a room. This room was called the Holy of Holies. It was a picture of where God dwelt, and no man could enter that room because God is holy and man is not. And there was one thing in that room. Do you know what it was? It was a box. And it was covered in gold, and it had two big angels on the top. And in that box were the commandments of God, the law carved in stone. And the idea was, if you can keep these commandments, then you could approach that box. You could enjoy the holiness of God, but no one could. No one can keep the law. So the people of God cannot be with God because of their sin. You cannot enjoy my presence. And yet a day would come when a priest would come in to that room with an innocent lamb and a rope tied around their ankle because they were afraid that as soon as they would enter that room, God would strike them down. So at least if they died, they could get that priest out with the rope. But the priest would enter and approach the box, and specifically they would approach the lid of that box. The lid had its own name. It was called the Hilasterion, the mercy seat. Because God told his people, I will meet with you at the mercy seat. And the priest would take the blood of an innocent lamb, and he would cover that lid with it. He would cover the mercy seat. And the picture was this, that when God looks at his law, he doesn't see our sin revealed, but rather he sees the blood of an innocent sacrifice. And that blood covers the law that I violated. He doesn't see my sin, but rather he sees a payment. That's propitiation. God's wrath is appeased. And if you don't remember anything, like if you haven't been paying attention before this, and if you're going to fall asleep in 30 seconds, that's fine. So if you don't remember anything else, remember this. When Jesus died on that cross, when Jesus died on that cross, he appeased the wrath of God 
that you and I deserved. Righteousness came from apart from the law. Jesus, innocent and blameless, he kept God's law. He did it perfectly, sinlessly, and he willingly gave his life. And just like the mercy seat, when God looks at us, he doesn't see what keeps us apart from him, but he sees what unites us. And what unites us? The blood of Jesus covering us. And it's in that place that we are declared justified. But only, only if you have faith, a faith that moves you towards surrender to him, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> Paul says God has passed over former sins. So there was a time when God left sins unpunished. I heard something this week that was helpful in thinking about this. Um, think back, back to when you were a kid. Let's say you're at dinner and you start messing with your brother or you start getting snarky with your parents. Like, did your mom or dad ever look at you and go, you better stop or when we get home, you're getting a whooping? right? Your parents ever say that to you? That's a weird position to be in as a kid, right? So for a time, they were willing to let it go, okay? And you just hoped that they would forget somehow. So like maybe they wouldn't remember that they told you that. So when you get home, you speed off to your room, you get on your jammies and you get under the covers and you're just like, did they forget? Did they forget? You're waiting, you're listening for them to walk up the stairs and you're just hoping that they would forget. The universe has been wondering, will God forget? Will God forget the sins of old? Will he forget? This creates some tensions. How did God allow for so long for sin to go unpunished in the Old Testament? Like Jesus hadn't come yet. And if, and if they died before Jesus willingly went to the cross, then how are they declared righteous? Like it would not be just for him to just give a nod to sin and allow it to go unpunished. He would compromise his own holiness. How could God, as the Holy One, tolerate human sin without inflicting full punishment on human beings immediately? How, did, how is that possible? The key phrase here is divine forbearance. That word forbearance means to have patience or to have restraint. So while it would have been just for God to fully punish sinners in the Old Testament, after all, they didn't uphold the law. They were guilty. It would have demonstrated God's justice, but it would not have demonstrated God's mercy. And we have a God full of grace and truth. Paul's answer is that God would look forward to the cross of Christ where the full payment for the guilt of sin would be made. The claims of justice and mercy are both found in the cross. And you see God foreshadowing this all throughout the Old Testament, right? Jonah, after running from God, he gets swallowed by a fish. And when he's in the midst of that fish in Jonah chapter, chapter 2, verse 4, he says, I am driven from your sight, yet I shall look again. And do you remember where he's, where he's looking? He's looking to the temple. He looks to the temple where God has promised that through the blood of an innocent sacrifice, he will find forgiveness. This is why Paul says, uses a phrase he passed over that we're to remember the exodus 
the freeing of God's people from Egypt, that God promised that he would strike down the firstborn male of every house, and he instructed God's people to take an innocent animal and spread its blood on their doors. And do you remember what he said? Exodus 12, 13, the blood shall be a sign for you, the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. See, it all points to a day. Every story from Abraham to David to to Daniel to Shadrach, Meshach, and every story, you can make a connection with every story to Christ. Because it all tells the same story. It all points to a day. And every year, each family would have the Passover meal as a reminder, God is making a way. And the Passover had a specific script that was never to be changed. There was always a point during the Passover meal where the presider of the meal would say, may the all-merciful one make us worthy of the day of the Messiah, that they would sit around and they would dream and they would think, I can't wait till the Messiah comes. The Messiah is going to save us. God has made a promise that they would look ahead. But do you remember what Jesus did the night before he was betrayed? and he's sitting with his disciples, and he, they're having the Passover meal, he changed the script. This script that never changes, this script that no one messes with, Jesus changed the script. And in that moment, he doesn't look ahead to the Messiah, but he says, this is my blood of the covenant, poured out for many. And on the cross, God's just judgment fell on Jesus for every repentant sinner. And for those who are not repentant, God's judgment will surely fall on them. The cross, yes, is a sign of mercy, but it's also the ultimate display of justice, which begs the question for those of you who are in here who would not call yourself a Christian, those of you who think that God is not worthy of your worship, if God did not forget the former sins, what makes you think that he will forget yours? If he didn't forget the former sins, What makes you think that he will forget yours? Your sin will be punished. Every sin will be punishment, and judgment will either fall on the cross or it will fall on you. There will be a day when his forbearance will end, where his patience will end, where his restraint will end, and a judgment day will come. In verse 26, it says, it was to show his righteousness. This was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God wanted to show something about himself on the cross. He's revealing his character on the cross. First, that he's just. And God's justness is made clear both to the believer and to the unbeliever. That his justness is comforting to the believer, but it's terrifying to the unbeliever because God will always get the sinner's judgment perfectly right. He will. God will always get the sinner's judgment perfectly right. Understand something. He will not misjudge you. He can't. He will not misjudge you. I might misjudge you. Others may misjudge you. Others may have already misjudged you, but God will not misjudge you. He knows you. He knows you. He knows your heart. He knows your desires. He knows if your faith has truly been put in Christ. And he knows if you have not. And the second thing that God showed through the cross is that he is the justifier. 
He is a justifier to the one who has faith in Christ. The cross is often referred to as the great exchange, where the sins of his people were put to Christ's account, and he paid the price. And the righteousness of Christ, obedience to the Father, was put to our account. And so he not only justifies us, but because of that credit, because of what he's placed in our account, he also adopts us. Justification and adoption go hand in hand. That when he justifies you, he adopts you. Because justification, it's more than a pardon, okay? A lot of times people refer to it as a pardon, but it's more than a pardon. Like, like in a pardon, the judge declares that you're guilty, but the price has been paid, so you're free to leave and you're forced to find your own way. But here, he not only pardons us, but it's more than that. He gives us an inheritance as his children, and we get to experience the true love of the Father. Galatians 4.4, 4, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave. Listen to what he says. You are no longer a slave, but you are a son. And if a son, an heir through God. So let me ask you a question. What are you putting your faith in? Like, really think about that. Like, the things that make you move, the things that stir your affections, the things that are active in your life, where does that come from? What motivates that? What are you treasuring? What are you putting your faith in? Yourself? Because that's not enough. You have fallen short, and it will never be enough. Are you putting your faith, your treasure, your motivation in the world? Because it will not satisfy you. And if you think that it can, you are being lied to. It will not save you. Or would you put your faith in Christ? The only one that can fully satisfy the only treasure worth treasuring. He's better than anything in this world. 